Good morning. I'm uh, genuinely pleased to be here. Uh, We come from the high desert just outside of Los Angeles where we have the exact opposite of your climate. We uh, have 350 days a year of sunshine. You have 350 days a year of rain. Uh, We have everything brown and dry and and, uh, you have everything green and wet. So, So it's a joy for us to have a change of environment and to be with friends and to be with you uh, today. I had a funny conversation last weekend in one of the services, a woman who just recently came to faith in our church, and that's very important to us. We're a a church that's really kind of built itself around being in process with people who don't believe. I know that sounds like maybe a funny uh, agenda for a church, but we uh, have that agenda, and it's deep in our heart to want to be a part of the process of people as they explore what it means to believe in God and trust in Christ. This woman came to me to tell me about her recent decision to put her faith in Christ in our community, and and she was saying that she, she was in her 60s, which I know is advanced in age, and many of you would know that it's Mark's birthday today, and he's also in his 60s, so... uh, Not not quite, is it? That's not quite true yet, but... This woman was telling me after a lifetime, really, of avoiding any commitment to any kind of idea about God, and she had had friends along the way that were Christians who had kind of shared their faith with her. She even had family members, I think one or two of her siblings, and she had a daughter as well who had become Christians along her life path, but but that not, had not broken through. But finally, somehow, in these, this last year, she had come to faith, and she was telling me that that all these people that she knew in her life who were Christians had all sent her Bibles. You know, they probably didn't know that someone else was sending her Bibles, but she ended up with this pile of Bibles, like six, seven Bibles, and, and she said, and I, I had to find somewhere in my house to put these Bibles, and, and she said, so I, I had, this is so funny, I had to take all of my eight-track tapes, she said, and, and I put all the Bibles where the eight-track tapes were. Like, who has 8-track tapes? I mean, really, does any, anyone in this room have an 8-track tape still? Do you even know what that is? Probably you don't. It was like the original form of the cassette music tape, you know, and uh, it was ridiculous. But she had these 8-track tapes, and, and I thought, how, how true to the way it really is when God begins to move into our life in a real way that some things have to move out. Some things have to be exchanged. The shelves of our lives have to look differently. I want to talk to you about maybe the most important exchange that we make in either our pursuit of is God real, is faith, as Hebrews 11 defines it, that God exists and that he responds, that he connects, he relates, he rewards those who seek him. You know, the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17... (laughs) What is my message from my friend? I am not 60. I am only 53, and I'm a very youthful 53. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for that, Mark. I'm riding my bike to Paris. That's how youthful I am. So, what were we talking about? I don't even remember. I I know it has to do something with the Bible. Uh, Paul, in Acts 17, right, he, he says that the reason you and I have our life, when and where we have it, I think an incredibly important question. Why am I here? Why now? Why am I 
living at this time in this place? That's just a profoundly human question. Why am I here? Paul says that God has set the time and place of our life that we might reach for him and find him because he's not very far from every one of us. As we begin to reach for God and find him, which is the very kind of meaning of life, one of the things that has to happen in the exchange of the shelves of our life is that we have to exchange out the things that are really valuable for the things that are not. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 6 together. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn with me there. If you're not familiar with how your Bible is arranged, then and you have a Bible with Old and New Testament, just open it to the middle, the kind of dividing point. You'll be in the Psalms, undoubtedly. That's kind of the middle section, content-wise. And then turn to the right towards the end of the book, and the very next book is the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is a collection of wisdom sayings that try to communicate truth in order that we would apply that truth with great decisions and end up with great results. That's the essence of wisdom, knowing what's true and using that truth to make great decisions that end up in great results. Most people believe that the book of Proverbs is a collection of Israel's wisdom over time that was codified and arranged in order to uh, form kind of a textbook or a primer for princes. For those who would be in you know, the ruling class of Israel, this is training and instruction in wisdom so that they might make great choices. I don't know how you feel about wisdom, but I feel about it in an increasingly complicated and challenged world and challenged life. I think that we need more of it. I think we need more ability to make in the face of complicated challenges, make great choices that bring about great results. So interestingly, James says about this issue of wisdom and our need for it, he says, if anyone needs wisdom, he should ask God, because God actually wants to give us wisdom, wants to help us with both truth and the ability to make choices based on that truth. But I particularly like that James says, ask God for wisdom because he gives it generously without finding fault. I love that. I love that God doesn't look at you and I. I lead a church, by the way, that of the five or 6,000 people who are part of our church community, about a third of them come out of a hardcore addiction background, cocaine, crystal meth, heroin. I mean, real, real destructive life choices. But it's not just the third of our community that has made poor, foolish, deadly kinds of bad choices. I mean, all of us have made those bad choices. But James says, God doesn't look at you and I and say, oh, now you're asking for wisdom. After making a mess of your life, after making so many poor, bad choices, foolish choices, now you're asking for wisdom? God doesn't do that with us. From a place of not finding fault, you need wisdom? Let, Let me help you. The book of Proverbs is one of those places that God can help us with wisdom. We're going to just read a little passage together from Proverbs 6 that is about the stuff God hates. Now, I don't know if you expected to come to church today and talk about the stuff God hates. That's, that's not normally my favorite thing to talk about, but I think it's incredibly important. Because it, contrary to how we might imagine, you know, that... The the sentimental view of God is that, you know, God is just kind of like a doddering grandfather, which I hope to be soon. In fact, Nancy and I are going to have our first 
grandchild that our daughter is going to deliver to us. Hopefully not while we're here in England, uh, but when we get back sometime in May. And, and I hope to be a daughter and grandfather, but God is not a daughter and grandfather who just kind of sentimental and easygoing, oh, let boys be boys and girls be girls. He, he actually is, is, as the Bible defines him, he is love. He is essential in his nature, loving. And God has always existed in a relationship of love. He's never needed something to be created from human beings to dinosaurs. He didn't need to make something in order to have something to love. God has always existed in the community of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, the uniquely Christian view of God. God has always existed in a committed relationship of love. And out of the abundance of that love God created, and out of the abundance of that God God has redeemed and saved, and so God who is love, sometimes it's difficult for us to imagine that God who is love, he hates things, but of course he does. Anyone who truly loves also hates. I began to find out about this. My wife and our oldest daughter, not the one who's delivering to us our first grandchild, but our oldest daughter, Lindy, who's 31. She just got married a couple of weeks ago. Our whole family was together in Mexico, this little town that her her husband is from, uh, called Atlisco, south of Mexico City. There's right next to the volcano that just erupted. They're there. Uh, so uh, she got, just got married. And I was thinking, you know, in that whole process, you know, being father of the bride and all of that, I was thinking about when Lindy was born. And she was our first, and, and, and I had delayed, you know, Nancy was ready to have children the day we got married, and, and I, I held off for five years, of first five years of our marriage, because I didn't think I'd be a good father. I didn't have a model as growing up. I, I didn't know what it meant to be a father. I thought, I'm probably going to make a mess of it, so maybe better not. And, and Nancy was patient, and and eventually wore me down, and, and there, there we were, about to have our first child, and, and I thought, oh, what am I going to do? I don't even like kids. You know, like, I don't like them, and I never was one, unfortunately. I grew up way too fast, and, and I thought, how am I going to do this? And then I did the typical parent thing. I fell head over heels in love with her as soon as she was born. She was very premature and very challenged in her life in those first moments and very scary, but I just fell completely in love. I thought this is the greatest person who's ever lived. And it was the most, that moment was the most selfless feeling of love I'd ever known. Now, I know that's hard to confess to, being both a, a Christian, at that point a husband, but I, I thought this is the most selfless love I've ever known. But I can tell you in that selfless place of love, as any parent knows, there's things that you hate. That anything is going to destroy what you love, you're going to hate that. I, I, I hate uh, cars that race by too fast on my street as a threat to my child bolting into the road. I, there, there are things that you're going to be absolutely, resolutely opposed to. Of course you are. That Love is not sentimental. It's, it, it's, it's not some kind of empty emotion. It is a profound orientation of life. So when Proverbs 6 tells us that God hates some stuff, it is in the exact kind of, uh, what's the right word, Uh, joining of the reality of the depth of his love. Here's what Proverbs 6 says. I'm going to read it. Starting in verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. 
haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Let me read that again. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. The passage begins with a literary device. There are six things God hates, seven that he finds detestable. That six to seven literary device is a, is a way to intensify the seriousness of the topic. It's a way to say this is really important, really serious, pay attention to this. It, in some ways, it's similar to the, the rhetorical device that Jesus uses in his teaching where sometimes he says, I tell you the truth. This is the guy who said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Always be honest and tell the truth. And Jesus occasionally says, hey, I'm telling you the truth. Why would he do that? Why would the person who is so absolutely committed to always being truthful make a particular point to say, I'm telling you the truth? The reason is it's a, it's a rhetorical device to signal that what he's about to say is like really important. And the second thing is going to be hard to believe. It's going to be hard to believe. That's what's happening in Proverbs 6. Six things God's hate. Seven that he finds detestable. This is really important. And it's probably going to be hard for you to believe. Now, I don't know if we had passed out a... a blank piece of paper. And we just did a little pop quiz here today before we got into all this. And I asked you, tell me what you think are the things God hates. I think it would be an interesting list that we would come up with. I'm not sure our list would agree with this list. I think that we tend to think about the things God hates in a, in a caricature way sometimes, in a way that, you know, it's like he's against this behavior or that activity or that kind of thing. And there certainly are behaviors and actions in the list, but I'm not sure we would get it right, and I don't think necessarily that we would start the way that the book of Proverbs does. Here's something God hates. Here's number one, haughty eyes, an arrogant way of viewing things, of seeing things, that we'll start with that. I'm not sure that we would think of all the things God hates, that the thing that he would start with is this posture, this practice, orientation of life about how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we see God, that we would do that in an arrogant way, that we would start there. Because I, I would think that most of us think that pride's not such a terrible thing. You know, gosh, it's good to have self-worth, isn't it? It's good to have a, a self-confidence, a, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Is it a little bit of pride good for you? Apparently not. Not in terms of the way that God looks at it. That in fact, if we could suggest this, and this is a, a pretty cruel list, uh, that it's the worst of things. It's the beginning and everything else comes from this. That pride really is the start or the beginning of the fall. That God really does oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. It really is, as Isaiah says, that God is determined to take down the proud, that this is maybe the original of original sin, that in that garden of God, you know, when the temptation is there to know the difference between good and evil by choosing what is evil and, and believing the lie that we won't really die, that aren't really consequences to that, but we can be like God, that really in that place, there, there it is, you know. That we just opt for pride over and over and 
over again. There's two really interesting connections in this passage to Jesus. One of them is that here in Proverbs 6, of the seven things that God hates, all seven of these are the crimes committed against Jesus in the last days of his life. These are all the things that surrounded his arrest, his condemnation, his cruel treatment, and his execution. These seven things swirl around Jesus in his sacrifice and suffering for us. So in a very real way, Jesus not only bears the worst of us in his innocence, taking on our guilt, in his perfection, our brokenness, and his completeness, our depth of need, that in that grand exchange that the gospel says that God has sent his son for us to redeem us, to buy us back, to to be the bridge that we cross back over into a reconciled relationship with God, that Jesus bears not only the worst of us, but the worst of all of us, Not, not simply as the exchange, but also as the object. But there's another connection with Jesus. And that the seven things here in Proverbs 6, many people believe that Jesus had these consciously in mind when he gave his most famous teaching about the Beatitudes, the blessed things, the things that God wants to bless. There are also seven of those. And very interestingly, as Proverbs 6 starts off with haughty eyes, Jesus starts off with blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, you know, in that sense of gasping for breath, don't have enough life. Blessed are those who, in humility, theirs will be the kingdom of God. The other link, of course, in the seven is that Proverbs finishes with, you know, sowing dissension among brothers. Jesus finishes with, blessed are the peacemakers, those who reconcile and bring people back together. There's three things that I want to talk about in talking about kind of haughty eyes. That's the only one I'm going to deal with, and I'll be over time as it is. Uh, But haughty eyes. Three things about seeing arrogantly that I think that we exchange on the shelf of our life. First of all, it's how we see ourselves in relationship to God. How we see ourselves in relationship to God. The original sin is that we want to see ourselves ridiculously, I know, because life is so fragile and brief, and maybe it was easier in the garden and innocence to imagine it, but somehow that we're the equal of God, that we can be like God. Now, I know it's ridiculous to kind of postulate that in a place of worship like this, but, but everybody's living it out. Everybody's living like, yeah, I know I'm not really God, but I, I want to pretend that I am. And I want to pretend in this essential way that somehow I am self-sufficient and independent in my life, that I don't really need God or the idea of God. To some people, he may not exist, but even that, thinking you know, that I'm here without any connection to a source of life, you know, that independence, that self-sufficiency. Jesus in John 5, when he's talking about his mission and, and the end result of it being that he would, in his authority that God has given him, that in what he is doing and and would do for us, that he would grant to us eternal life. Jesus says this about the Father. He says, the Father has life in himself. And he goes, and he's granted the Son to have life in himself. And then, of course, whoever to whom the Son gives that life. We do not have, you and I, life in ourselves. We have 
received life. We have derived life. We have connected life. We are we are the 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 branches, not the the root system of life. And that fundamental recognition that in relating to God, I am the creature, not the creator. I am the child, not the parent. I'm the servant, not the master. That fundamental posture, that's the beginning of real faith. Without that, it's not possible. There has to be the beginning of true humility about ourselves in relationship to God for there to be the beginning of real faith. I, I came to faith. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up in any kind of religion at all. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest of the U.S. It's called the Bible Belt. But I always jokingly say I grew up in one of the holes in the belt because there was like, there was no Bible in, in my life. You know, like I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know any of the Bible stories. I didn't know who Jonah or Noah or anybody was. I, I got to the point of being in university and, and had my girlfriend very shockingly uh, uh, tell me that she was now a Christian and it would probably be difficult for us to have a continuing relationship because I wasn't uh, my girlfriend then and now my wife sitting here of 36 years. But but at the time, I, she said, you know, this isn't going to work for us. And I said, yeah, you're right, because I'm never going to be a Christian. And then I secretly went out and bought a Bible so that I could read it and find out what she thought. And I would talk her out of it. I thought this has got to be easy because the Bible's just full of myth and story, right? I'll just, I was so arrogant. How I got to be so arrogant, I'm not sure. Because I came from a broken neighborhood and a broken home, and there's, there wasn't a lot to be proud about, but I was so arrogant. And I went to get a Bible so I could figure out this silly stuff and talk her out of her new faith. And I was so arrogant, I thought, I don't need to begin at the beginning of this book. I can figure this out, I'm sure. And so I jumped in. Guess where I started to read the Bible? For the very first time, didn't know anything about faith, religion, Christianity, Judaism, nothing. Where did I start? The book of Leviticus. That's where I started. Some of you read the book because you're laughing. You know that book. Clean and unclean, this time of the month, that time of the month, this curse, that curse. I thought this is going to be, uh, this is going to be easy. This is going to be easy to talk her out of this stuff. But then I made my way eventually to the Gospels. And in reading the Gospels, I, I didn't understand what they were telling me, but I was intrigued by the person of Jesus. And over a process of months of reading and kind of considering and wrestling and asking questions just really of myself, no one much you know, else to ask questions of. But at the end of that process of time, I, I, I decided to send up a flare I had never prayed before in my life, and I had no expectation that anything that I said would be heard or meant anything, but I thought, I'm going to give this a try, and so I shot up my first flare of a prayer. I said, God, if you're up there, some of you know this kind of prayer, God, if you're up there, I'd really like to know, and if it has something to do with Jesus, I'd like to know that too, and I shot that flare off and I thought that that was a silly thing to do here I'm kind of I was sitting in on my bed in my bedroom alone and I thought how f foolish of me to be talking to myself and I stood up from sitting down having fired that flare off and it was like an arrow went through my heart and I cannot explain it to you but it's as though my heart was a bucket a tin bucket full of anger and rage, and I mean, I had seen and done 
things at a, I mean, there was just too much in my life from how I grew up, the neighborhood I grew up, friends killing each other, shooting, just, you know, it was that world. And when I stood up and that, I felt this arrow go through my heart and it's like that water of rage and anger and hurt and disappointment and it just began to drain out of my life like a puddle on the ground. And I thought, oh no, it's real. Oh no, someone's listening up there. Oh no, that there's this possibility to connect and actually relate. And that starting line is just the even the most brief kind of humility. God, if you're up there, you know, then I want to know, and I know that you have something to do with my life. There's some authority, there's some accountability for this gift, for, for what we've received. When we don't kind of think that way, when we don't, the fundamental issue is, is about authority. Does God really have something to say? Do I, does he make some claim on my life? Does that have some validity and uh, you know, power behind it? And until we acknowledge about who we are in relation to God, some kind of central facts, then, then we will be standing in that place of having haughty vision, having an arrogant way of seeing ourselves in relation to God. We are called in Christ to follow him. It says a very interesting thing in in Philippians chapter 2. It says that Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Being in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality something to be clung to, not released, but he emptied himself and that he humbled himself and became a servant, taking that into his very nature and and was obedient to death on the cross that in following Jesus who was equal to God but didn't kind of cling to it but but humbled himself we who are not equal to God how easy it ought to be for us to follow that path how easy it ought to be for us as Romans 12 says do not think more highly than you ought but think of yourself with sober judgment and in accordance with the measure of faith that you have In sober judgment, we acknowledge that we are not God, but he is. And that starting line of real truth and real faith, no wonder God doesn't love, you know, haughty eyes. No wonder he doesn't tolerate it. No wonder he wants to eradicate it from our life because it's a false foundation sure to collapse under us in a destructive way for us and for others. Secondly, (laughs) secondly, we uh, uh, battle this exchange about, you know, haughtiness and arrogance for humility and how we view others in relation to ourselves. Others in relation to ourselves. I think this is probably the foundation for the worst crimes of humanity. It's how we view others in relation to ourselves, that somehow others are less than, that we're more that our needs, wants, rights, etc., that they're more valuable, more important, more whatever, and someone else's are less. I mean, everything from genocide to slavery to, to the every form of exploitation and oppression, all is justified by those who do it because, you know, we're more and they're less. You know, I live in a community in Los Angeles that that is incredibly diverse. Our church is very diverse in terms of both Hispanic and African-American and Caucasian, Asian. 
And in that environment, it's so interesting to watch people who formerly would have looked at one another as less. And the work of God's grace in our hearts that begins to break those really corrupt ways of looking at things and begins to change them so that we actually embrace a humility about how we think about others. That we don't think about others as left, even if we disagree with them, even if we would say that what they do is something that we would have conviction against what they do. But even in those conflicts over what is right and what is wrong, that sense of looking at someone and saying they are not less than me, but maybe even, as the scripture says, they're more than me. Philippians 2, again, that same passage, it talks about Jesus humbling himself. Paul says in that passage that, that you and I, if we have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort, any fellowship with God's Spirit, any mercy and tenderness that have come into our life because what is what Jesus has done, it says then in humility, what do we do? Consider others better than ourselves. I've never seen that verse tattooed on anybody. You know, consider others better than yourself. That's a tough verse. That really? Is that the expectation? We could really do that? It's impossible. It certainly is without the comfort, encouragement, fellowship, mercy, and tenderness of God and His Spirit in Christ in our life. Impossible. But because of those things, it really is possible. And I'm not undermining our sense of value. You know, your identity, my identity... The gift of God in Christ is that our identity can be grounded in the love of God. That it's not based on how we look, thank God. It's not based on what we do, though we don't believe that. It's not based on what others think about us. Your identity, my identity, is meant to be based on the fact that God has loved us in creation, given us life, and in salvation sent His Son to exchange for us. That's the root, the anchor of our identity. I have this enormous value and worth and dignity because of how God has loved me. In that place then, for me, in that security, like Jesus had that security with the Father, how difficult is it for me to follow Him in laying my life down for others? Jesus became obedient to death on the cross, Philippians 2 says. He valued you and I more than his life. It's really possible to live that way. In fact, not only possible, that's the call of God on his people. And I know we haven't lived up to it, never. You know, from the very beginning with the people of Israel, God you know, promised Abraham, I'm going to bless you. That's where we stop. I'm going to bless you. God's going to bless me. He's going to bless me because I must be better. I must be... I must be more right. I must be special. And no, I'm going to bless you so you'll be a blessing. Chosenness was always about service, not about kind of privilege. And we as Christians following Christ, we should be the last people who think of ourselves as, well, we're more. But we do. We do. We have to humble ourselves. You know, I was having a conversation with someone between services and they're asking about a church that has so many former or ongoing addicts in it. And, and what does that look like? And, you know, it's pretty messy. Pretty messy. You know, I, I think of one woman who sat on the front row of one of our weekend services. And we have lots of them. But, but one of the services, she sat on the front row for about six months drinking uh, vodka out of a paper bag. 
but she was already high in crystal meth. The vodka was just trying to mellow out her 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 uh, her run, and and I, I it was like you know she was literally challenging me, you know, to challenge her, and I wouldn't do it. I just let her sit there, high, stone, drunk, week after week. She would occasionally come forward for prayer. I'd pray for her, some somebody pray for her in our team, and just love her. Finally, after about six months, she she decided to get into one of our programs, to get into something, and her life, I mean, just, I'm talking about revolution. I mean, this is an incredible transformation. But she says to me, at one point, she says, why didn't you ever reject me? Why didn't you ever run, why didn't you ever kick me out? Why didn't you ever run me away? I said, because God thinks you're really important. Because I, I wanted you here, because because we really do care about you. That just that was the thing that broke her open was that we wouldn't reject her, that we wouldn't drive her away. And what enables that, you know, how do we really live out that mess? I mean, most of us want to insulate our life from the mess. We don't really want to be connected to people that we think are less than. We don't like our lives lined up with us. You know, it's hard for people in our midst because we're such a mixture. You know, we have like a, a judge sitting next to a parolee. How comfortable is that? You're a judge, and here's someone you sentenced to prison who's now out sitting next to you in church. How comfortable is that? Do you like that one? How about a homemaker sitting next to a homeless person who just stinks of urine? And and, and that's not comfortable. How about a, 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 a space scientist who works for NASA, and, and they're sitting next to a gang member, a, you know, Cholo, who... You know, just all tatted up with prison tattoos and gang markings and the things on the face that describe how many people you've shot. How about that? Is any of that comfortable? Does that sound like church to you? That's our church. I love this one that happens, you know, like, because we, you know, are in the part of the L.A. community that includes just this massive, you know, pornography industry, and we'll have people come that are working in that industry presently, you know, or whatever. It's just wild to watch. And, and I'll have someone come to me and say to me about some situation. I'm always being appealed to, to, can't you get these people to put on some clothes? How about that one? How do you like to come to church and see someone who's working in porn that thinks this is the natural way to dress and they're not, they don't change to kind of show up at our church. How about that? And they say to me, a mom, and I totally understand, I, my heart like goes out to her. She said, I got my daughter here, she's 13. We see this woman in front of us, and can't you tell her to put some more on? And here's my response, no, I can't. Because as soon as I tell her to put some more on, she leaves, and I'll never get the chance to tell her about the gospel. And I said, here's, here's the deal. I, I always put it this way, and I always win this argument. With a mother, anyway. I say, here's the deal. That girl, we don't know her story for sure, but I've heard enough of the stories that I can tell you this might be true, that she's got a grandmother somewhere who's praying to God for her granddaughter, saying, God, would you reach my granddaughter? She's lost and, and confused, and she's so far off track. Would there be a group of Christians anywhere that would love her and accept her and help her find her way? And I said, we get to be that group! We get to be that group of people that loves her and helps her, and she's hearing the same thing you're hearing, and she's in this environment of worship that you're in. Couldn't we tolerate the fact that she's got some enhanced body parts hanging out? Couldn't we really tolerate that? Wouldn't that? Was that too big a sacrifice for us? 
It's, it's all in how we look at one another. Do we really look at others and say, ah, don't want to be around them? That, I think, honestly, I'm not trying to slam anyone. I think those are issues of pride in our life, not just self-preservation, not just we want our life to look a certain way. There are really issues of condemnation and a sense that I'm better, and therefore, why do I have to be connected with those who are worse? And the instruction that the, the word gives about do not be conceited, right? We're told in the New Testament. Do not be conceited and be willing to what? Associate with those of a low position. There, there it is. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm not proud. It's another to associate with people of a low position. I got to quit. Here's the last thing that I want to talk about. And that is exchanging this haughty vision in our life, not only about ourselves in relation to God and others in relation to ourselves, but also God in relation to the world. Two, two places this touches down. God, I have this arrogant vision of how God relates to the world. The best example of this, of course, was the Apostle Paul, who thought, I have it all figured out. I know just what God requires. And out of that passionate, committed, confident, I think arrogant, place. I know just what God requires. Paul pursued kind of the early church to imprison and persecute and even execute Christians. And on the road to Damascus, the risen Jesus shows up for a little conversation with with Saul of Tarsus, knocks him off of his horse, blinds him in the dust. I think maybe the most, you know, kind of merciful act of blinding that ever happened. You know, it would be like tremendously merciful of God if we are actually blind for him to show us how blind we are. So Paul's laying in the dirt blind, and his friends have to lead him into town. And there in town, what does he do? He won't eat or drink. You know what that is, right? You recognize those symptoms. That's mourning. That's what you do when you are deeply mourning. You don't eat or drink. And he is mourning the blindness of his life. That he had lived so arrogantly and confidently that he knew just what... God's will was, and God's will was for him to hate and to kill. And he says, oh no. And after a few days, Jesus sent one of his servants to Paul, laid hands on and prayed for him to be filled with the Spirit, and scales fell off his eyes. He's like the prototype, I think, of what needs to happen to most of us. Scales need to fall off our eyes. And you know what Paul did with the rest of his life about God in relation to the world? He loved Gentiles. He poured out his life unto death for Gentiles, the very people he would not relate to or have anything to do with. The thing that he maybe hated most, he pours out his whole life for them because he understood God in relation to the world. Here's here's the key. How does God relate to the world? He relates to the rest of the world just like he relates to you. And here's how he relates to you, Romans says, that it's through kindness, patience, and tolerance that God leads us to repentance and change. Kindness, patience, and tolerance. If that's what he's shown you, then what are we doing? If that's not how we're relating, knowing that's how God's relating to the world, what are we doing anything else? Too many Christians act like they know Jesus is the judge, but he's deputized them to be kind of like writing out tickets, writing out little mini judgments for people. 
when we're specifically forbidden to judge. That's what we're told. Do not judge. And we're warned, if you do judge, how you judge, the measure you judge is going to come back on you. That verse scares me to death. Like, no thanks. I do not want any part of that. I'm happy to err on the side of, I'm going to extend grace and patience and kindness and tolerance that leads to repentance. You know, we would have a testimony in our midst that that really works, that that's not just words, that change really happens. You know, I told you about how people dress. Well, well, one time in our church, there was this woman. I'm going to finish with this. I know i got to finish. Don't I have to finish? Yeah. Anyway, thank you. Got dinner in the oven. we got to finish. So here's the story. This woman's in our church. I hadn't seen her before. She looks uncomfortable after the service. I look for uncomfortable people to talk to. And I went up and introduced myself. She said, I know who you are. And she wouldn't really give me her name or look at me. And I, so I was trying to, you know, explore with her a little bit and asked her, she, you know, how she was doing or how long she'd been coming around. She finally begins to tell me a little bit. She says she'd been there a few months and, and that, she then kind of cracked open and she said, and I feel like for the first time in my life, maybe I could have a relationship with God. I said, that's, that's great for me to hear because that's really what we want to have happen. She said, but I got to ask you a question. I said, sure, you can ask me any question. She says, is it all right for me to bring friends from work to church? I knew it was a setup. I said, of course, that's all right. That's what we do. We want everybody to do that. Bring your friends. Like, that's what this is about. Hang out. She says, well, she goes, I work here. And she told me the name of a strip bar, a strip club. She told me she was a stripper. She said, I bring some of the customers to church with me. I'm thinking the guys that are putting dollar bills in her G-string, she's bringing along to church. There would a lot be people that would be in our church that would be scandalized by that. But I act like she's a plumber and she's bringing, you know, clients to church. I just say, yeah, that's great. Good. Good for you. Some people wouldn't like that I responded that way. She actually, though, looked at me and said, really? I said, yeah, no, that's really okay. That's a good thing that you're doing. And then she offered, which I, I just have total confidence in. Jesus is the one. He brings conviction. You know, She says to me, I guess maybe I'm going to have to find a different line of work. I said, God will lead you. He really genuinely will. As you give your heart to him, he's going to lead you. She poured out her story, classic story, single mom, you know, no skills, no education. You know, this is one way to actually support her family. Couldn't do it in McDonald's. You know, the classic story. I hear her whole story, and, and then I prayed for her. I see her about, you know, a few months later. She's just different. She just looks different. She doesn't have any of the same kind of expressions. She's dressed different. I said, what, what's going on? She said, you won't believe it. She said that, you know, I, I was coming here, and... I wanted to put my, my child, she had a son, into our school. And she said, and through the school, I met this person who said, we have this job for a receptionist. And she said, I, I went and I told them my background and I told them the truth and they gave me the job anyway. And, and I have this job as a receptionist. And I mean, she just, life changed without anybody writing her a ticket, without anybody sitting in judgment of her life. Her life changed. How does God relate to the world? Well, our view of it ought to be in humility, how we view that. How does God 
you know, how do we kind of understand ourselves and really ought to be with humility? How do we think about others ought to be with humility? And if it is, rather than having God oppose, but having him put the wind in your sails to actually, he says, I give grace to the humble. I oppose the proud. I give to have God behind you in humility. You don't lose, you gain. Let's stand up together and pray.